Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is our second sermon in our sermon series on the life of Abraham. We began our study in its prologue in the genealogy of Terah. We saw how chapters 9 through 11 of Genesis has led us into a more and more dark, greater wickedness since the flood. It seems humanity is no different than it was before God's judgment. We remembered how at Babel the peoples of the earth ignored the express commands of God. They intended to make a name for themselves. We also saw how Abram and his family living and prospering in a center of moon worship. How they lived a life with a host of gods and goddesses. The voice of the Lord God unheard due to the noise of the false. A false worship that even included human sacrifice. We saw a family teetering on the edge of a cliff in spiritual darkness. A brother dies too young. The wife of another, who repeated for emphasis, was barren. She had no child. No suggestion of a reason. Instead, it is simply a family without a real future. Nowhere else to go. Indeed, this metaphor, this reality of barrenness, tracks its way through the scriptures. This metaphor of hopelessness, no future, because indeed human beings have no power to create a future. God, however, cannot but succeed. The Apostle Paul preaches this way in Acts chapter 14. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He did not leave himself without witness. So we know that the line of Seth, the seed of the woman, had quietly been moving throughout the course of history since the flood. And now here we are with this small remnant as God prepares a new nation who will carry his revelation to all of humanity. Indeed, through this small, little, fragile family, the Messiah himself would one day arise. And so in that bleak picture that we left in the prologue, the text erupts as the Lord God dramatically enters the scene. No introduction. He delivers the seed of the woman on the verge of extinction in a fallen and wicked age. Notice how here in these three verses, our Heavenly Father is the subject of this account. He is the one who speaks. He is the one who calls and commands Abram 
to follow him. You see, this scene is the thematic center of the five books of Moses, the call of Abraham to the land promised. It's with its promise to give him that land that explains the journeys that close each of the five books together. Genesis ends with Joseph having his brothers swear to take his bones with them when they leave Egypt to fulfill God's promise to Abraham. Exodus ends with the expectation that God's glory cloud will lead them from Sinai to the land promised to Abraham. Although Leviticus draws to a conclusion in a summary way, these are the commands the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai, Numbers adds its own commentary, substitutes Sinai for the plains of Moab, reminding us that the journey and those commands were active all through the path they took in the wilderness, eventually arriving on the shores on the western side of the Jordan River, ready to take possession of the land. Indeed, Deuteronomy also ends here. But now Joshua is appointed. He will lead the Israelites to fulfill this great promise in the call of Abram. So this evening, we're going to just study here. We're going to focus on the call. And next week, we'll examine the promise, the promise of the land itself. So let's look at the call now. We have verses 1, 2, and 3. We'll begin here in verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now have you noticed something right away that I did a little differently there instead of what was actually in your ESV text? Now the Lord God said to Abram, is what the ESV says. You notice that little letter there? It refers to a note. The Lord had said is also allowed in the original language. So what we have here is that God had already said these words, not in Haran, but rather in the Ur of the Chaldees. So we have Abram, the descendant of Shem, living the successful life in pagan Ur. So we need to ponder how far God was commanding Abram. Notice what he says here. In descending order, from the largest to the smallest, leave his country, leave his people, leave his father's household. These three specific areas of Abram's life defines him as to who he is. Indeed, his name itself comes from his household, his father's household. He is the son of Terah. But now, his future is uncertain. There is this command, this vague command, go to the land I will show you. He is not told here, that Canaan was the land God was talking about until he got there. 
Now, John Calvin makes a wonderful paraphrase in his commentary on this passage. He notes that this uncertainty did an important thing. It forced Abram to trust God's word, to trust God's word all the more. Calvin writes that God said, I command you to go forth with closed eyes. And I forbid you to inquire where I am about to lead you. Until, having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. Utterly to me. Abram is commanded to trust and obey the bare word of God. He writes that this is the true proof of our obedience as believers. We are not wise in our own eyes, but commit ourselves entirely to the Lord. So John Calvin writes. Now have you noticed how the call to forsake all is very similar to another call? Do you know what that one might be? It's the call that Jesus makes to those who trust in him for their salvation. This is what Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 says when our Savior has these amazing words. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Mark 8, verse 35 is even more stark. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whosoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. This is Christ alone, isn't it? When Jesus calls us, he does not guarantee the future or even tell us what it will be like. He pro does promise, though, that he will take us to be with him, which is the ultimate land of God's promise. He does promise us forgiveness and inner peace. He does promise that he will be with us through thick and thin. He does promise our ultimate good. But Jesus never says that our life will be smooth here while we remain as pilgrims on the earth. He does not say our problems will be solved, nor that we will have a life of peace and of ease in earthly terms. Indeed, this is what makes the prosperity gospel so wicked, how it seeks upfront promises of worldly wealth before one turns to Christ. The lesson for us is simple. If one persists with a focus on oneself, we will never indeed come to Christ. When our Savior says those words, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, he's alluding here to Genesis chapter 1, to leave your father's household and trust in my word to save. We also have another promise now, a personal one, Abram himself in verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, 
and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Now, when we consider God's promise here to Abram personally, they are grand and glorious, but they are promises that he himself would never experience because the ultimate fulfillment would come through his descendants. Indeed, when we pray for the salvation of those around us, members of our family, we will, may not even see that day until we come to glory and know that they stand beside us because our Heavenly Father has already called us home to be with him before that glorious day comes. In Abram's case, the fulfillment, of course, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the believing church, both of ancient Israel in a specific geographical region, godly Gentiles who are called by God's predestinating election into that family, and then globally in Christ in the Great Commission as the gospel is preached all around the world. So there's a magnificent promise here in verses 2 and 3, aren't there? Because it uses the word bless and blessing or blessed five times. This is remarkable when you consider that the word bless has appeared five times and only five times in the first 11 chapters. And now here we are and we find it five times in just two verses. It underlines for us how sure and certain these promises are to be fulfilled. Already here we can see the trust in God's reliable word. But there is even a polemical contrast here because at Babel, people sought to make a name for themselves. But here, the Lord promises to Abram, I will make your name great. What you may not have noticed, that it actually contains seven expressions of God's provision across these three verses. Abram's blessing is both personal for him only, but he also becomes an instrument of blessing to others. Note also the, all the promises are full of this divine assertion that they are God's. Five times we hear I, 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 I. Everything is from God himself. God's promise that Abram would be a great nation slams right into the reality of his situation because Abram and Sarai are childless. This painful reality in antiquity and doubly painful in the throwaway world of the Ur of the Chaldees. In a sense, Abram was asked to believe in the dark. And more, Abram was promised they would not merely become a great people, but a great nation. Now here is where it gets fascinating. Because in the original language, the word for nation here is goy. Which is the word used frequently in the Old Testament not to, destroy, not to describe people in general, but rather to describe the Gentile nations of the world. 
Today, the Hebrew word for Gentiles is still goy, singular, and goyim, plural. So already here, we see the reality that is fulfilled in your life, my dear friend. That you, as Paul writes in Galatians, are offspring of Abraham. Abraham's offspring would be a goyim, the Gentiles, an entity that gathers together from across the world. But what of verse 3? More of God's work. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the second half of this promise moves from the personal in Abram to a global aspect. There is more than the law of retribution at work here in God's curse for curse, blessing for blessing. Instead, what Moses does is very clever. He sets these two lines, I will bless those who bless you, and contrast with the curse. Curse him who dishonors you in a construction that makes it emphatic. In other words, Moses puts a threefold underline here that the judgment is certain, that the judgment is final, that the blessing is certain, that the blessing is final and eternal. And there's more. The I will curse is related to Genesis 3.14. It's used in the same way concerning the serpent in the Garden of Eden. In chapter 4 of Genesis, it's used in reference to Cain as he slew his brother. And again, in chapter 9, to Canaan. Cursed be Canaan. In other words, the ones who come under the curse are what? They are the seed of the serpent. Therefore, we see here already the spiritual aspect of Abram's call. This contention of seed of the woman and seed of the serpent, it's not going to go away. Therefore, the believer is encouraged because the blessing is certain and eternal. And those who may harry or persecute Christ's church should beware, for judgment likewise is certain, final, and eternal. Retribution and justice from God is still active, as his promise to Abraham remains active, and is evidence in the lives of Christians today. The very fact that there are peoples and nations around the earth that respond to the gospel of Christ in ways that in my lifetime I would never have thought possible within China or Iran or indeed now in central Iraq. And we see many come to Christ and be baptized. These are the realities that begin here in Genesis chapter 12. This is not left to some impersonal operation of faith. It is God himself who says, I will curse, reminding us of the final judgment itself.
when the books will be opened. Abraham's call ends with the glorious promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. Now, the translations should just clan, but the Hebrew has a broader sense again. Once again, we are talking nations. But this is not universalism, this idea that all the families of the earth will be delivered. Rather, the context is one of what? Of enmity between seed of serpent and seed of the woman. It does not mean all people without exception, but rather it means all people without distinction. Now this should not surprise us, as Anglicans should it, because every month, and in many Anglican parishes every week, you will hear, I hope, the comfortable words of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Do you know it? How about if I start it off? If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well done, you get a gold star today. It's the whole world without distinction. We catch sight of this. On the day Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, on that day, amid great celebrating, the empty temple receives the Ark of the Covenant into the most holy place, and the glory of the Lord fills that place to such an extent that the priests could not minister because it became so absolute. And Solomon, in his blessing of the people, spreads out his hands towards heaven and gives this great dedicatory prayer. It's the ending that should concern us. It becomes indeed the very point that is made in Isaiah 56, where all will gather to God's holy mountain, all without distinction. Isaiah was thinking of this great day when Solomon prays this prayer in verses 41 and 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So we see in the one hand a fulfillment of the call to Abraham that we see in verse 3. But also we learn something else, that the temple itself had a specific strategy. It was meant to be used for Gentile evangelism. But sadly, Abraham's descendants, the children of Israel, never did rise to this glorious task. Indeed, it is why our Savior cleanses the temple the way he does. Because it's there that the money changers were at work, extorting not only the Jews who have come from a faraway place, having to use just the temple currency, but also the God-fearing Gentile all happening within the court of Gentiles. 
He cleanses the temple and appropriates it. The glory of God has returned, now veiled in flesh. And in his last great public act of ministry before his arrest, he teaches the people. But remember where he is. He's in the court of the Gentiles. It is not just the Jews who hear him. But indeed, it is the godly Gentiles as well. So we learn the fulfillment of this great promise thousands of years before is revealed fully in that cleansing and appropriating of the temple for the glory of the gospel and in Christ Jesus. Because it is only in Christ, the ultimate seed of Abraham, that the fulfillment came and the blessing went out to all people. Because he himself became the temple, hasn't he? Paul uses this language of indwelling. And Peter talks of we being living stones of a temple. In that way, we ourselves are fulfilling Solomon's prayer, referring back to Abram's call. That's why the Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 3. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Isn't that interesting? So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the gospel, our good news, was announced 4,000 years ago. Abram in darkest Ur, the shadow of the great ziggurat towering above him, human sacrifice underway. And the gospel is announced in advance to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, and now becomes the great commission that you and I proclaim to all those whom we love and know. And so redemption will come in advance through Abram, in the person of the Messiah, and now for all the world, which begins in the call itself. And show the shortest psalm in the Psalter, 117, are going to be sung by all the nations of the earth. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The psalmist understood the call and the promise of God and the fulfillment in Christ that he too indeed shall build his church. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the support the show link under the contact us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.